from 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we learn about the unusual respiratory illness in dogs that has veterinarians stumped. We'll visit the Copper Crow Distillery in far northern Wisconsin that's getting a lot of attention. I think a, a great deal of it has to do with the native connection because we are the first native-owned distillery in the U.S. and uh, the fact that we put out really some incredible products. And a lot of it also, I think, has to do with our sustainable use of whey. We'll hear some new songs from local musicians in this month's Milwaukee Music Roundup. Plus, Bubbler Talk highlights the legacy of Dorothy Endress. She didn't see this as killing time or just keeping kids off the street or keeping grown-ups off the street or out of the bars. She saw recreation as a completely integral part of a well-rounded life. All that's coming up on Like Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Veterinarians have seen a rise in an unusual respiratory illness in dogs across the country. While they try to pinpoint the culprit of the illness, they're encouraging people to take basic precautions to keep their pets healthy. Wisconsin is among the states that have likely seen cases of the illness, which has caused dogs to experience a wide range of symptoms, including kennel cough and flu-like symptoms. To learn more about the unusual disease, Lake Effects expert Nunez spoke with veterinarian Dr. Keith Polson, director of the Wisconsin Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory. Veterinary labs across the country have increasingly become aware of this mysterious dog illness. Can you tell me what this new illness is and is it really a mystery? Yeah, that's a you know very good question. And that's one of the hardest things that all of the veterinarians and our veterinary diagnostic labs around the country, be it universities or state departments or even commercial labs, is that we don't have a very good case definition. And it's certainly an increase in canine respiratory disease. Each state is reporting something a little bit different, but I think the minimum that we're finding is that dogs are presenting with cough and they are not responsive to the first line of treatment that we typically do for something, let's say, as for like kennel cough, which we see normally, and especially more in times like this when it gets colder and people are traveling and they're boarding their dogs. This cough is lasting much longer. Uh, for most of my colleagues in the Dane County area and now in, you know, all over the state, they're reporting dogs are coughing for four and even up to eight weeks. A very small subset of those dogs are developing pneumonia or they're developing lower respiratory signs. And then of, of a smaller subset of those dogs are actually seeing mortality. And I think that's kind of an important point is that, you know, different states are reporting different levels, but we don't really know what the clear case definition is to actually report. And we're talking to our Department of Animal Health on a daily basis, along with other infectious disease outbreaks that we're dealing with right now in different species but it's hard to know what's an actual case. So right now we're, we're kind of forming that with our colleagues around the country. Right. Putting it together, seeing where everyone else is at. Um, right. Like you mentioned, you know, the numerous cases have been reported across the country. I know some big states that came out first in the news were Oregon, Colorado, New Hampshire. So just to clarify, have any cases been detected in Wisconsin? You know, it's challenging to say detected or to have that clear case definition because we're not absolutely sure 
what is actually causing this increase in respiratory disease. So in New Hampshire, we talk to that lab quite a bit because we both serve on the same committees. They have some preliminary data with some advanced technology called metagenomics that they're looking at something that we consider or what it's called as a, a non-culturable bacteria. So they're very small bacteria and they're strange in that they don't culture as well or as easily as something like a streptococcus or an E. coli. So what we're seeing then is from places like New Hampshire or Oregon, they're collecting it based on clinical signs. And if we're using that as a kind of a baseline, we're seeing the same clinical signs and the same case presentations that other veterinarians are seeing around the nation, um, but we don't really know what to call it. And when we we really look at this as it's not a reportable disease to the Department of Animal Health, but Department of Animal Health, we're all getting the same calls and we're talking to see, well, what do we do now? What do we do next? And to see if we can find an answer and help our colleagues around the country, because everyone's seeing something just a little bit different. Most labs are reporting a high morbidity or a lot of sick dogs, but a low mortality. Very few dogs are dying from it. But even with few dogs that are dying, we have we have a case today. And I know other veterinarians have, have reported this. And any dog that dies, I know, is very, you know, it's hard because the dogs are part of our families. It's hard to, to do that on something that we don't really know exactly what is causing the, the disease syndrome. Is it a combination of a virus and a bacteria? Or is it, why is it spreading so quickly? And, you know, a lot of unanswered questions. What are some other notable symptoms of this illness that dog owners can watch out for? Yeah. So your dog may cough. Um, and it may cough for a while. Um, dogs might have a fever. And usually we don't take dogs' temperatures. Um, but when dogs have a fever, they don't feel well. They might not eat or they might not drink as much water. Um, so it, changes in their water and diet intake are important. And then they might be lethargic. So they might not have as much energy as they usually do. Um, but I do think that's important for the listeners and dog owners around the state and the country is that you will see a cough for longer than what you'd expect with just a, a 10 to 14 day normal kennel cough. And how are veterinarians treating the new illness at the moment? So it really depends on, on the dog, but I think the basics for treatment through your veterinarian are going to be antimicrobials and or cough suppressant and maybe pain. And then, you know, supportive care, making sure your dogs are eating and drinking. Some of the dogs and many of the uh, my colleagues around the state are contacting and saying, we're not seeing a, a good treatment success with our first line antimicrobials. And then we're using a more intensive antimicrobial therapy. So it can be pretty complex. And we, we typically tailor that to each individual animal. Right. Everybody's situation is unique. Right. What are veterinarians doing to prepare for a possible surge in cases? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And I, I do think that many of our veterinarians are already seeing this surge and we're hearing from more practices every day. We do see increases in respiratory disease as the weather gets colder and more dogs are inside or holidays when they're being boarded. Uh, maybe they're going to the groomer. And veterinarians, what they're doing is I think we're getting a lot of requests and we're pushing out talking points, just like, you know, doing interviews like this. And then that awareness can go to the our dog's owners. So, you know, making sure that dogs are up to date in their core vaccines and then anything else that might increase their risk they might have for dog owners to say, 
well, uh, maybe we should avoid the dog park at peak hours. Or if we have a dog at a higher risk, make sure they're vaccinated. If we go through and go to dog daycare or to dog boarding, if you're leaving for the, you know, the next holiday season coming up, we can still prevent the preventables, right? In this different change or a newer emerging respiratory disease, we're doing the best that we can with a, a pretty immense infrastructure to see if we can find something that we can target specifically for this disease. Unfortunately, around the country, we just haven't had any smoking guns or of something of this is an exact diagnosis and this is what uh, we can do to either prevent it or treat it effectively and, and efficiently. Right. A question I'm interested in is, can humans or other animals catch the illness? Has that been noted before? With this different respiratory disease, we have not recognized any species change whatsoever. We do not anticipate sick dogs with cough to infect other domestic animals in the house, be it a bird or a cat, and certainly not their owners. We have seen it spread from one dog to another, so people with multiple dogs. And then we've also seen dogs that only one dog in the household was sick. You know, everyone has a, a unique immune response um, and their ability to either shed or fight off any type of respiratory pathogen. So I think that that's important is that we're not seeing it really amplify into people or other species at this time. And I think when we have a better idea of what's exactly causing that, we'll know more of what those risks are, what would change or what should we be looking for. Okay, so what is your advice for someone? Hopefully this doesn't happen, but my little pug, Benny, what if he's sick? What should my maybe game plan be? A great question. I think that's for all the listeners out there or anyone that's a dog owner that's concerned about their family pet, is that I would contact your regular veterinarian. And if your dog is getting sick where they're not eating or drinking, then they need to be seen on more of an urgent care emergency basis. But when they start with a cough, that's when I would contact your, your regular veterinarian that you see on once a year or twice a year basis and move from there and ask questions. Be careful of what you see on social media. Ask your veterinarian to make sure that you're getting most correct information that we have and that we're, we're using your veterinarian to provide some sort of either direct treatment or supportive care. Well, Dr. Polson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and sharing this important information. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Dr. Keith Polson is a veterinarian and director of the Wisconsin Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory. He spoke with LikeFX expert Nunez. Did you know you can listen to LikeFX as a podcast? Just search for LikeFX wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up in the show, Matt Wilde of Milwaukee Record joins us for his latest Milwaukee Music Roundup. But first, WUWM's Susan Bentz takes us to the nation's first native-owned distillery in far northern Wisconsin. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. There's something unique brewing in far northern Wisconsin off Lake Superior shore. Curtis and Linda Bazney are members of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, and in 2018, they opened Copper Crow Distillery, the first native-owned distillery in the United States. The Basneys never lived in Red Cliff until Curtis retired from his job as a state highway patrol officer. Curtis tells WUWM Susan Bentz his father, Laverne, had a lot to do with the inspiration that led to the distillery. Oh, and by the way, you'll hear the sounds of the distillery at work. Dad taught uh, math, uh, high school math for years. He left Washburn High School and then taught uh, uh, math and economics over at uh, the technical college uh, until he retired. And then when he retired, he started the gas station across the street. And then eventually when I retired from the highway patrol, he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, Dad, I'm retired. And he says, you want a gas station? And I said, all right. <laughs> so, so that's where that started. So were you interested in distillering, you know, over time or how did this evolve? When we vacation, we typically visit, you know, your wineries and your breweries and your distilleries and uh, decided to go to a, uh, a national convention a number of years ago, yeah. uh, the American Distilling Institute, just, I mean, just for something to do. When, when we came back, I, I said, you know, there's, there's a business opportunity in the Bayfield area to do this. So, uh, so we looked into it and uh, uh, had a very, very professional and in-depth market analysis, feasibility study and business plan and said, okay, let's go for it. This is a big leap to take this on. Oh yeah, yeah, you bet. So tell me about the building. We wanted a building that was uh, was gonna fit uh, and we didn't want just your simple generic steel-sided warehouse. Uh, so we kept uh, we kept thinking about about a building shape, and um, on one of my trips out west to to visit family and do some hunting, there's all of these uh, very iconic barns out out west in the mountains that somewhat resemble this, and uh, and I came back and I, I said Linda I said I think um, I think I have a building design, and she said okay I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it from there. And she said, it's, uh, it's going to be black. She has an eye for that kind of thing. So when we started construction, you know, everybody was, well, you're going to, you know, put a red roof on it or, you know, make the windows a different color. And she said, no, it's all going to be black. And, uh, and everybody just kind of laughed at her and said, that's never going to work. And uh, now that the building is, is here and it's black and has just a couple of copper highlights on it, everybody absolutely loves it. And the setting. So is this land that your family owned across um, from the gas station? It's kind of a long story, but yeah, the family owned this. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, even though it's within the boundaries of the reservation. The reservation is what they call checkerboarded. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of land that is owned by the tribe. Some of it is held in trust for the tribe. And then a number of other parcels are held privately, whether they're from tribal members or non-tribal members. Uh, and then when Dad went ahead uh, uh, with the plans for the gas station, this was part of that land that he purchased. Eventually, when, uh, when we sold the gas station, Linda and I bought this two and a half acres from the gas station. How long did it take to build this? And in the meantime, were you like learning your skill or you really didn't start distilling till this whole operation opened up? The Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, TTB, the people who do the, the federal licensing, 
you pretty much have to have a building. You pretty much have to have equipment and everything already in place before they will grant you a permit. We went ahead and we designed the building. Uh, our son-in-law built it. We knew we were not going to be turned down by the TTB, but if on the slight chance we were, we had a beautiful building we'd do something else with. So how long from the building's completion were you, did you have people in your tasting room? So we got, uh, uh, the building was complete. We got our, uh, our basic distilling permit from the federal government uh, in the spring of 2017. And then of course, then you've got to apply to Wisconsin to get a Wisconsin yeah. permit. And uh, we started uh, production in late 2017 and uh, opened the doors to the public, I think, in the spring of 2018. And you've been busy ever since, I bet. Yeah, yeah. So what's that sound we hear? This is a very, very small air-operated uh, pump. So what, what that's doing is it's drawing spirits from the bottom of that tank, pumping it through these filtration devices, yeah. and then pumping it right back into the tank. So okay. it just constantly is, uh, is circulating. What's percolating in there? So right now that we're filtering um, vodka made from whey. Which I heard about. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily my first choice. <laughs> How did it happen? Uh, so um, I had gone to a, a distiller's conference out in Seattle, Washington, uh, and the guy who was putting the, the course on, his name is Rusty Figgins. He, I mean, almost immediately pulled me off to the side and said, you're from the dairy state. You need to look at doing something from dairy. Uh, and he says, I'm going to suggest whey because, uh, because it's, it, for the most part, it's pretty much a waste product. And if you can figure it out, you will have a, a, a brand for Copper Crow Distillery. We did some uh, real small experimentations. We, we established a relationship with Burnett Dairy down in Grantsburg. Once we had it, boom, we just ramped up. So wasn't your daughter in UW Menominee in some way connected to this story? Uh, yeah, so both my daughters uh, went to school at UW Stout in, uh, in Menominee. Uh, the youngest uh, uh, daughter uh, was kind of a science person, so she, um, throughout her course of studies, got to know the, the science people real well and the dean of science. He said, Becky, what are, what are your plans for the weekend? And she said, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to um, hang out with my folks and uh, I'm going to you know, help them out in the distillery. And he said, uh, what? Your folks have a distillery? And um, then especially when they found out that we were making spirits from whey, uh, they wanted to be involved in, uh, in doing experimentation and research and finding more efficient means of, of our fermentation process. So how much of the vodka that you produce here is the whey, is whey? We do a number of different things with whey, but if you compare our wheat vodka and our whey vodka, probably... 40% of our vodka is produced from whey. So that's based on your clients out there who are buying yep. the stuff. They like it. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's different. It finishes creamy, and it has a very slight sweetness to it, a sweet finish to it. How would you describe this? This is now, what, six years in, right? Yep. It's actually, a lot of work, but we... Yes, a ton of work. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what drives you? You know, it's certainly not the, uh, not the income. The business is profitable, I am not. I really don't draw a salary. What drives me, I think, is um, the math and the science, the alchemy. You know, being able to, to turn uh, 
to turn essentially a waste product into a value-added product. Yeah, and just meeting people, the tourism, and so I, I think that's kind of what drives me. So was there the need to take this idea to the travel council? Oh yeah, yeah. Let's move into the other room because this thing's making a lot of noise. Okay. Yeah. We went to the tribe and told them what it was that we were planning on doing. And um, they obviously had some questions. They are the, the ones who then issue the business permits. They did have uh, some say in it. Again, they certainly asked an awful lot of questions, mm -hmm. you know, because of the, the negative stereotypical association between uh, Native Americans and substance abuse. Mm -hmm. But in the end, you know, we were able to explain that this is going to be a tourism-driven industry. We're going to be selling very high-quality spirits. And they approved our business permit, and we moved forward. You have a lot of calls for interviews. You get a yeah. lot of attention. Yep, had one yesterday, as a matter I of fact. That's what I heard. Yep. So, I mean, what is it? Is it the, is it the Red Cliff connection? Is it? I think a, a great deal of it has to do with the Native connection because we are the first Native-owned distillery in the U.S. And uh, the fact that we put out really some incredible products. And a lot of it also, I think, has to do with our sustainable use of whey. So how much whey are you? Not enough. I probably get uh, 750 to 1,000 gallons of whey every three and a half weeks. So it's not very much. For every pound of cheese that's produced, there's nine pounds of whey. So, uh, so these, these, especially these large cheese producers, have to have uh, a way to dispose of it. Uh, and it's, uh, it, if it's not handled correctly, it, uh, it has some environmental impacts. The alchemy part, were you like into chemistry and all that good stuff through your life? Or where, um, did, where is it coming up from high school? I would have to say that uh, it was, I don't want to say it was forced upon me, but my dad was a math teacher. And the, the people that he hung out with were teachers. And one of his uh, really good friends uh, was, uh, was a science teacher in, in Washburn. We did everything together, from fishing to hunting to this and this and this. So. So the, the math and the science background just kind of naturally fell right into, right into my life. My father, um, at a very early age, was severely stricken with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, again, he, he, he ran a, a whole career in, in the teaching field. So was your dad, is your dad, dad still alive? No, he's been gone 10 years now. Oh, so he didn't see this? He did not, nope. What do you think he think? I, uh, um, when dad started that gas station, he was probably one of the first entrepreneurs in Redcliffe. And, um, you know, he, similar to what Linda and I did, he took a, a, an, an incredible risk. He saw a need, saw the opportunity to serve the community, um, offer jobs to community members. He was a pioneer in private industry in Redcliffe. And I think, uh, I think he would look at this and say, Good job. Yeah, you've done something that nobody else has ever done. Kurt Fasny is the co-owner of Copper Crow Distillery in far northern Wisconsin off the shores of Lake Superior. He spoke with WUWM's environmental reporter Susan Bentz, and you can find out more information on the distillery at wuwm.com. It seems that winter is finally upon us here in Milwaukee, and although there are fewer live shows, local musicians are continuing to release new music, and Matt Wilde has been listening. 
Wilde is the co-founder of Milwaukee Record, and every month he creates a list of some of the best new releases from local musicians, called the Milwaukee Music Roundup. He joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to share a few of those songs. The first song that we're going to start with, it's an interesting song from an artist I don't think we've actually talked about before, Ellie Jackson. Yeah, Ellie Jackson, you're right, we have not talked about her before, and that's because even though Ellie plays out a lot, she doesn't have a ton of recorded music kind of under her belt. She's more known, I think, especially to me, as kind of a support for a lot of other artists. She plays on a lot of other local artists' albums. People like Kaylee Conway, she appears on a lot of Kaylee uh, records and shows. She plays uh, with uh, Johanna Rose, Old Pup, a bunch of other bands, Social Caterpillar. She's one of these musicians that is kind of seemingly everywhere, but uh, her own recorded material, it's, it's, it's a little harder to find. So that changed recently when uh, Ellie released uh, two new songs that uh, are her own. And uh, the one we're going to be listening to is called Dinner with a Friend. And I just really, really love this song. It has got this kind of 60s bubblegum kind of feel, but it's also got this kind of like melancholy vibe. by Ellie Jackson. Now, the next song we're going to listen to, it has a very retro feel, kind of dreamy, 60s-style music. It also, for some reason, reminds me of the intro to Full House, which maybe makes sense with the name of the song. (laughs) I love that. And again, once again, I can't top that. So let's just go with that. It sounds like the intro to Full House. Uh, Kind of similar to uh, Ellie Jackson, like I was saying before, uh, this song by uh, Terry Allen Hackbarth. That's a name that uh, Milwaukee music fans will know. Uh, He's played in uh, a lot of classic Milwaukee bands, uh, most notably Trolley from the 90s and the aughts. And uh, ever since then, he's appeared on a lot of other people's records and played with a lot of other people's bands playing bass. And uh, folks may know him as uh, the uh, the guy running the show at uh, Bullseye Record Store on the east side. Over the last year, Terry has been putting out a series of uh, solo songs, which, as far as I know, are his kind of first released solo songs. And the one we're going to be listening to now is called I Heard That Song Before. And you're right, it does have a very, very retro vibe, and it's very much in Terry's wheelhouse. Uh, Trolley, certainly kind of a 60s-inspired, jangly, power-pop band. And this solo song, I Heard That Song Before, definitely has that same vibe. So I don't know if this is going to lead to a full album or what his plans are, but I've really been enjoying these solo songs from Terry. So this is Terry Allen Hackbarth with I Heard That Song Before. Sounds 
song before by Terry Allen Hackbarth. The next group we're going to talk about, uh, they're still relatively new, but they've already become a major player in Milwaukee's music scene. Um, maybe it's down to their name, uh, Ratbath. Ratbath. I just cannot get enough of Ratbath the band and Ratbath the name. Yes, it is a fantastic name and a fantastic group. Uh, Ratbath, kind of a uh, an all-queer, all-trans, uh, kind of queer core, kind of country core. I think they dubbed themselves, I don't know if they came up with this term, but they refer to their style of music as y'alternative, which I think is fantastic. They put out one of my favorite uh, Milwaukee albums of 2022. Uh, that was their debut. It was called Rat From Hell. And now they are back in 2023 with one of my favorite Milwaukee albums of this year. It is called Call Me A Monster. And like Rat From Hell in 2022, Call Me A Monster, it's not just a collection of songs. It is a very intricate and very elaborate concept album. This one involves a time traveler falling in love with a vampire. Uh, Their past record had to do with a demon and a witch kind of fighting each other and overcoming trauma. Very, very, like I said, elaborate, but very, very fantastic. And uh, the song we're going to be listening to is, I guess, uh, kind of the... The title track from the album, it's called uh, Calling All Monsters. And uh, it's just one of many of my favorite songs on this record. Ratbath had a huge uh, release show for this record at the Backroom at Colectivo just a few weeks ago. And they really went all out with the whole record release, too. They, Leading up to it, they kind of wrote these journal entries from, uh, from the characters of the record and hid them around town, and people could find these things. And, it, you know, I just... I love when bands really go all out and do these kind of crazy things, and uh, it's wonderful. So congrats to Ratbath on uh, their new fantastic record. And we'll be listening to the title track right now. This is Ratbath with Calling All Monsters.
Calling All Monsters by Ratbath. Finally, uh, this song comes from a prolific Milwaukee musician, Laurel Sulfate. It's a very driving disco, kind of dark disco, if you will. Uh, Very in keeping with her style of music, I think. Absolutely. Uh, Laurel Sulfate and her Ladies of Leisure, they are back. And speaking of records that I loved from a few years past, Laurel Sulfate and uh, the LOL, as they're sometimes known, uh, put out one of my favorite Milwaukee records of 2019, Dance Music Saves Lives. And that was a very, very upbeat, very bright, uh, almost very poppy and almost disco-y album, kind of in the mold of like early 80s Madonna. And now, a few years later, they are back with a new record. It is called The After Party. And it is uh, definitely a darker, kind of gloomier record. Still a lot of, you know, big hooks and a lot of, you know, dance beats. But uh, it, it definitely does have this kind of darker, almost gothier vibe to it. And it's a, it's a slight direction change for Laurel Sulfate, but uh, definitely still within her wheelhouse. And the song we're going to be listening to is one of those songs that has just been in my head for weeks and weeks. It is called Girls Cry All the Time. I love this song. It uh, has not gotten out of my head since I first heard it. I went to Laurel's, uh, the big record release show at uh, Landmark Lanes on the east side, and that was a fantastic show. And this song just has been banging around in my head ever since. So uh, let me subject everyone else to it as a fantastic song. This is Laurel Sulfate and her Ladies of Leisure. From their new album, The After Party, the song is called Girls Cry All the Time. sulfate and her ladies of leisure now this time of year I, I feel like we don't see as many shows that are happening of course it's getting pretty chilly out there but i know that you yourself are actually working through basically the whole year of milwaukee music right now Absolutely. This is the time of year where uh, all the best of lists come out. And over at Milwaukee Record, we are no different. We're doing, uh, for the last few years, we've been doing our favorite Milwaukee releases. We we stopped uh, calling them the best or the, you know, ranking them and things like that. And we decided, you know what, let's just talk about our favorites and write about them in, a, I think, more personal way than a usual kind of best of lists do. So that's what we've been doing the past few weeks. Uh, and we're going to have our lists Come out, uh, I believe, the week of December 11th. We're going to do our favorite Milwaukee albums of the year, our favorite Milwaukee music videos of the year, and a whole bunch of other goodies. So uh, it's been fun uh, going through kind of the year in music 
And uh, still a little more re-listening I need to do before uh, these lists publish, but uh, definitely looking forward to that. And uh, looking back on uh, these segments that uh, I, I do with you once a month are also very helpful because sometimes it's like, oh, wow, I completely forgot about this record, uh, which I love, love, love. So uh, thanks for doing this. It, it really helps me out at the end of the year. That's what it's all about, right? <laughs> Well, Matt Wild, thank you so much for joining us once again here on Lake Effect, sharing your work with us, and good luck on that list. Thank you. I'll need it. Matt Wild is the co-founder of Milwaukee Record. Every month, he publishes his Milwaukee Music Roundup and shares a few of the songs with us. You can find his previous conversations with Lake Effect's Joy Powers at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our Community Connection Line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. We'll take one more break and then return with Bubbler Talk. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Welcome back to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today's Bubbler Talk explores the legacy of who the Enders Park neighborhood is named after. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. For this week's Bubbler Talk, our question comes from right within the station. I'm Lori Jones. I'm the Here and Now host and operations director at WUWM. And I live in Milwaukee's Endress Park neighborhood. I wrote to Bubbler Talk because I would like to know more about Dorothy Endress, who the neighborhood is named after. And if you can, I'm also curious as to how her last name is actually pronounced. In the neighborhood, we say Endress, but I've heard other people pronounce it Endaris. Let's start with the name pronunciation of this West Side neighborhood. I'm Marilyn Wellauralinius, and I wrote the book on Swiss and the greater Milwaukee area. When we used to play tennis in the 60s, us kids used to say, we're going to Endress Park. That's not correct, really. We now say Endress Park, mostly, because I lived there for almost 40 years. And the older ones used to say Endress So actually, in German, Swiss German, it probably would have been Andres. But I doubt if it was ever pronounced that way when she or the family lived here. So from here on out, we'll refer to Dorothy's last name and the neighborhood as Endoris. Dorothy was born in 1880 to Swiss immigrant parents in Elmhurst, Illinois, and the family moved to Milwaukee the next year. After graduating from the Milwaukee Normal School in 1901, Dorothy worked as the school's assistant librarian for eight years, then taught fourth grade at the fifth district school. There, she stood out for making exercise a part of her students' daily routine. Dorothy's next job in recreation is what truly makes her stand out in Milwaukee's history. She's a key player in building our recreation program that has served thousands. 
But to add some perspective, historian John Gerda explains how recreation stemmed from Milwaukee's socialist roots. One thing they began very early was a study of recreation in Milwaukee. And they did a survey. Uh, they found 91 bowling alleys and 24 pool halls and not much for the kids. So there was an obvious need for recreation. And you have all these buildings and an extensive uh, large city uh, school system. And they put two and two together and say, why don't we light up these schoolhouses and use them for recreation centers when school hours are over? In 1911, the state legislature issued an official charter that made Milwaukee the first school system in the country to take responsibility for public recreation, making it a pioneering program. First known as the Extension Department, the Division of Recreation and Community Services remains under Milwaukee Public Schools to this day. Now, we simply refer to it as Milwaukee Rec. It was very typical for the socialist uh, economy and efficiency were very important for them. So you got these buildings going dark, uh, you know, whenever the school, school day ended at 3 o'clock, whenever it was. So why not use those? This approach is also how Milwaukee became known as the City of the Lighted Schoolhouse. The first rec sites were known as social centers, and early programs included everything from naturalization classes for new citizens, athletics, music, drama, bathing, dressmaking, swimming lessons, and more. Harold Berg was the first to lead this new department, and in 1911 he offered Dorothy Enders the position of his assistant for girls' recreation. Together, they shaped the key principles and activities offered, centering it on a neighborhood system. Harold Berg was certainly the pioneer, the founder, uh, but Dorothy Enders, her fingerprints, you know, were are really on the system as it exists today even. Enders became the director of recreation in 1920, and her mission was to make life richer for every person in the city, no matter their age or background. The quote that was associated with her most often was, uh, during working hours we make a living, and during leisure hours we make a life. And that, that's pretty profound when you think about it. Under Dorothy's guidance, Milwaukee became a model for playground and social center programs in the nation, and she significantly expanded the department during her 28-year tenure. She grew the system from, I think, 11 social centers uh, when she began to 40 uh, during her tenure, and they had staff playgrounds as well, and this was largely for kids. And again, during her tenure, uh, she grew those from 20 to 72, so she really was someone who uh, brought the system up to critical mass. She was certainly an adept politician, uh, which you don't often think of recreation workers as, uh, but she worked with the Common Council. Uh, she had a great deal of personal charm, and she could switch from German to English uh, at the drop of a pin. <laughs> and and that, that was useful you know, in Milwaukee back in the 20s and 30s. Uh, so she was someone who uh, was very adept at kind of the, the retail politics and someone who could translate her passion for her mission into political support. Uh, so she sounded me, you look at her picture, you know, she's a pretty joyous woman. You know, somebody who really had a, a kind of a, a bright outlook on life and somebody who was, you would guess, a perennial optimist, uh, as you have to be if you were in, in the public sphere. Dorothy Enderis certainly left a permanent impact on Milwaukee Rec, even as it has evolved over the decades. Lynn Greb is the current director of Milwaukee Rec, and she says Dorothy's vision is still a guiding principle today. She really promoted the value of recreation, and we continue to do that. Uh, a big focus of our programming is activities for all residents in the city. She was a, 
a hard worker and she expected a lot from her staff. And I think when you see the quality of programming that we've continued to offer throughout the past 100 plus years, you'll see a lot of her legacy continuing. I've been in my role since 2015. Uh, so I can't imagine being uh, for 30 years. You can see the commitment that obviously she made to the city and the school district through that work. So it's an honor to follow in the footsteps of, you know, all the people that came before and especially Miss Endress is so well known in our community that it's big shoes to fill. But I think from the foundation that was built back in the early 1900s that a lot of that history has endured and been carried through. And so a lot of the values that were held back then are still true today and things that we like to carry ourselves with as we do the work in the city. The play field in the Enders Park neighborhood is of course also a nod to Dorothy's legacy. Bobby Tanzillo of On Milwaukee researched the history of the play field and he's also a resident of the neighborhood. He says before there was a playfield, the land that the park sits on was farmland owned by a man named Erastus Smith in the town of Wauwatosa. And then in the 20s, you know, developers started to kind of move west of the city as demand grew, as population grew. And they platted out a whole neighborhood here, which was called Galecrest Park. Um, and it's basically the street layout you see today, although there are some minor changes. By 1927, the city of Milwaukee annexed the land to become part of the city and reserve some of the land for a park. The whole park land was bought in 1931 and was fully developed under the Works Progress Administration. They referred to it as the park at 72nd and Chambers more often than anything else. Um, so it didn't really seem to have an identity in terms of a name until it's renamed for Dorothy Endress. Dorothy Endress retired from Milwaukee Rec in 1948. And it was two years later when the park was dedicated in her honor. In 1950 is when the city officially hands this park over to MPS as a, for them to manage, for Milwaukee Rec to manage. Um, and at that same ceremony is when they named it in her honor. And fortunately, she was alive and could be there for it and enjoy it. It didn't happen after she was gone. Tanzillo says this New Deal era gem has something for everyone with a baseball diamond, splash pad, playground, tennis and pickleball courts, farmer's markets, seasonal events, and more. I mean, it really is a place that serves what is a much more diverse neighborhood than I think people might expect. If you just sort of drive through it, you might think, oh, it's all single family homes, but actually um, there are single family homes, there are some duplexes, there's a quite a few um, multifamily rentals. So it's economically diverse, it's racially diverse, and Everyone uses the park. It's appropriate that the neighborhood is named after the park because I can't imagine what the neighborhood would be like without it because we wouldn't have that same kind of, it's almost like a, you know, a European main square in a way. Lori Jones showed me around the neighborhood to see the park and meet some neighbors. Hi, Andy. <laughs> so I've been here 20 years and I think what I like best is... I mean, it's, it's a real neighborhood, but we're in the middle of Milwaukee. We've got busy streets, Center, 76th, Burleigh. But once you get in the neighborhood, it's just a quiet, very walkable neighborhood with very friendly people. And um, 
I mean, a great park right in the middle of it. So what's not to love? That's true. We're walking to it right now. I'm already charmed by it. <laughs> Lori's neighbor, Joe Donald, has lived in Enders Park for 33 years, and he affectionately calls it the park. He says in addition to the activities in the park, he loves the sense of community he feels. Well, I often say, you know, you can buy a nice house, but you can't buy your neighbors. And that's one of the things that I really am very proud about Andrews Park is the sense of community. People will do things for you, you know, without hesitation. Mary Mooney has lived in Enders Park since 2000. She loves walking in the neighborhood to meet others and look at the different styles of houses. I had a friend who lived down the street and I used to visit her and sit in her backyard and hang out and talk. I was like, this is exactly the neighborhood I want to live in. So this was the only place I looked for a house. <laughs> when I first moved here and we walked up to the park myself and my parents, and my mom told me a story that when she was younger, um, she used to come up to Andres Park and she used to um, use those land and stone pillars as a stage. And so it's kind of interesting that here I am living blocks away from where my mother played and not at all where I thought I'd be. <laughs> but lovely, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It seems like the same sense of community and quality of life Dorothy Ender has fostered certainly lives on in the neighborhood and playfield that bears her name. So whether you live in Ender's Park or have ever benefited from a Milwaukee Rec program, take a moment to think of and thank Dorothy Enderis, our Lady of the Lighted Schoolhouse. For Lake Effect, I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Support for Bubbler Talk comes from Paramos Pizza and UW Credit Union. What have you always wanted to know about the Milwaukee area? Visit wuwm.com slash bubblertalk to submit your question. Bubbler Talk is a regular series on WUWM. You can hear it on Lake Effect and Fridays during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Be sure to head to WUWM.com to explore all of this season's episodes. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and expert Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Eddie Morales, Mayan Silver, and Susan Benz from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Reavy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valera Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Join us again on Monday at noon for the latest Capital Notes, plus a conversation about the UW System's direct admissions program. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.